Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this evening to Psalm 126. Psalm 126, and you'll find this on page 517 in the Church Bibles. This has the heading, A Song of Ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Over the last number of weeks, uh, we have been looking at this collection of songs uh, that are part of the Book of Praises, the Book of Psalms, that are known as the Songs of Ascents. Uh, We have highlighted that uh, these 15 psalms have been purposely arranged. Uh, You see that heading is uh, given to each of them. And we have noted that there are certain commonalities in these psalms. There's a a purpose why they're put together. But the very name, a Song of Ascents, alludes to the fact that it is something that was probably used as the people made their way to Jerusalem as they ascended Mount Zion. And that's not a a simple guess. When you look over these Psalms, more than half of them will explicitly mention either Jerusalem or Mount Zion. So that theme is woven into these Psalms. But there's more that we can uncover about these Psalms as well. As you think in the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel, if they were going to understand who they were, They were to understand themselves because God had placed his name upon them. In the Old Testament, there was the Arianic blessing. That is a blessing that the sons of Aaron, the priests, would pronounce over the people. It's a blessing that is recorded for us in Numbers chapter 6. And in Numbers chapter 6, it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And by saying these words, the Lord's name was being placed upon the people of Israel. That blessing, you can actually break it down into parts. That when the priests pronounced the Lord's blessing on them, he was really saying, the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord be gracious unto you. And the Lord give you peace. There are four parts to that blessing. And for an Israelite who is to live in this world, they needed to know who am I? I am to understand who I am in relation to my God. How my God relates to me. And how I live now in this world under that umbrella. I am to know the Lord's blessing is over me. I am to know that the Lord will keep me. I am to know that the Lord will be gracious towards me. 
And I am to know that the Lord's peace governs and protects me. And when you come to these psalms, 12 of those 15 psalms will explicitly use that phraseology, peace. The Lord keep you. The Lord be gracious unto you. In other words, these psalms are, they're really meditating over what does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to live life with God's blessing? How do I go through this world as someone who belongs to God? And so these psalms are really, they're meditating, but not, not in the Eastern sense where someone empties their mind of all thought, of all content. The Eastern spirituality tries to eliminate thought. Whereas the Western spirituality, biblical spirituality, meditation is to fill the mind. It is to be shaped by the content of God's truth. And biblical meditation is really to chew over things so that the juices are enjoyed, so that you can savor the truth that you are coming to grips with. And so these psalms are really chewing over that truth. They're trying to get the juices out of what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be a follower of God? And this evening we want to turn back to this collection of psalms and we really want to be thinking about what does it mean to live life facing problems as a believer? How should I look at the world that I'm living in? What should be my attitude about things? How do I go forward? And if we are trusting in the Lord, it is to be shaped by an understanding of that relationship and to be able to live in light of that truth. So uh, we're thinking about that question, how should we look at life itself? Uh, Should we think about things as simply uh, going as they are and possibly going as they are even from here to worse? Uh, Do we look at all the world's problems and see bad things happening all around us? We see the way that society is turning and we we conclude things must be near the end because there's so many bad things happening in the world. Do we become pessimists, in other words? On the flip side, do we look around at the world and we see all the good things? We just narrow our focus and we just focus on the good things in life and that's the only thing we want to concentrate on and we, we want to be optimists and we think things are going to get better. Either either point of view is actually problematic when you don't look at it with reference to God. If you look at the world around you and you see the problems and you think things are just the way they are and they're always going to be the way they are or worse, then you're left with a a cloud of despair that is looming. You have little hope of anything to build for or anything to look forward to. And it is just going to be a weight that slowly wears you out. If you choose to be an optimist, though, without reference to God, you really don't have a way of explaining or guaranteeing why you think things will get better. You have no reason to be confident other than trusting in yourself and in the collective enterprise of humanity. But humanity and our experience of human beings teaches us that the heart is deceitful and that people do wicked things. 
So how do we look at the world that we live in? How, how should we be shaped as we face challenges, as we look at the uncertainties of the future? And this psalm is actually teaching us how to do so with reference to God. It is teaching us actually to look back in order to be able to look forward. That when we look back on what God has done, then we can look forward with expectancy about what God will do. But it's only when we include God that we can avoid the pit of despair or that we can avoid being deluded by false confidences in human beings. And so this evening, we want to see that because God has done great things in the past, we can expect and we should expect God to do great things in the future. We want to think about this psalm in two thoughts. The psalm naturally breaks down into two uh, sections. We want to look at first looking back on God's work of restoration in verses 1 through 3. And then we want to look at uh, looking forward to God's work of restoration in verses 4 through 6. Well, first, we want to think back uh, or look back on what God has done. In verse 1 there, it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. The language there is quite broad. It's very general and undefined. That could mean almost anything. It could mean the prosperity of Israel. It could talk about their success in former days. But a good case can be made that when it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... It's really zeroing in on when the people were brought back from exile. That the people of Israel in their own history as a nation, they were conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC, about 600 years before Jesus came into this world. When that happened, it was something that was devastating for the nation. Not just because their, their way of life was destroyed, as devastating as that is, not just because of it was the end of an era, but because their faith was so directly tied to that land. It was directly tied to Zion. The temple was in Zion. That is where the people met with their God. But when they were driven off into Babylon, when they were sent off into exile, it was like something that shook them, not just physically, but it shook them right to the core of their being. What hope is there now that even our, our God has brought this judgment upon us? And so in history, uh, it was something devastating that came upon them. Uh, but God had uh, said that they would be in the land of Babylon for 70 years, but that he would bring them back eventually. But for the people who went into exile, that must have been a far-fetched dream at that point. It must have been hard to imagine that they would ever come back. A conquered people don't get to come back. A conquered people are subdued. End of story. But here God had promised them that even when they go into exile, they go off to Babylon, God will bring them back. And in history... The king of Persia in 536 issues a decree allowing the people to return to their homeland, issuing a decree allowing the Israelites to rebuild their temple, 
allowing them to come back. And here is this amazing thing that takes place in Israel's history. When the people came back from exile, it was like a dream come true. The fact that this is talking about the exile here, we can see it for good reason because the grammar itself here says that the the captives of Zion are the object of God's returning. When God returned the captives of Zion. And the only other time that you find that language is in Isaiah 52, where it's referring to the people of Israel who are in exile. It describes them by that language of being Zion. And so here when it says, when they come back, it was like a dream come true. It was something that was astonishing to them. Something that was marvelous in their sight. It was something that is described here like a dream. It it, it was hard to believe that it was real. You may remember in the New Testament, there's the account of when Peter is in prison in the book of Acts. And you remember how an angel uh, wakes Peter and tells him to follow him. And Peter, who was in prison, leaves his chains and follows that angel, thinking it's simply a vision, only to realize this was real. That was the experience of the people of Israel when they came back. Is this really happening? God said it would happen but we're, we're witnessing it. Something that seemed too far-fetched. We're seeing it with our own eyes. God's word is being fulfilled. And so it was something amazing to them. But it's also something that they appreciated uh, as well. While they were in Babylon, it was a time of mourning. You remember the psalm where uh, they were mocked. Why don't you sing us one of your songs? Uh, one of your songs of Zion, but they couldn't. When they were in exile, it was a time of mourning. But when they came back, it was like a dream come true. They were filled with shouts of laughter. Uh, And this was something that was appreciated by all around them. It says that the nations themselves concluded that God had done something great for them. They recognized uh, this was God's favor upon them. And the people of Israel themselves came to that conclusion. The Lord has done great things for us. They didn't conclude Cyrus has done something great for us. They didn't say, oh, this is just all political process. This is all just maneuvering of politics. Uh, I guess it turned out well for us today. They concluded that this was nothing short of God's hand allowing them to come back. And so they gave appreciation to what God was doing. God brought us back to the land of promise. He drove us out. He promised he would bring us back. And here we are. When the people returned from that decree that Cyrus gave, not all Israel came back. It tells us only a remnant came back to the land of Israel. Only a minority of Israelites turned back looking for God's mercy to be restored. We sang there in one of the Psalms about how may God's help come to us from Zion. There was always the longing to be in Zion because that's where God's salvation would be realized. And so the fact that only a small minority turned back 
was a sad thing. Because the people collectively should have all turned back, seeing God's hand of mercy opening up to them. But only a remnant ultimately came. But those who did come back, it was like a dream come true. They saw God's hand of power behind it. But God's saving power that was displayed when the people came back uh, from exile is really uh, foreshadowing God's saving power that would be even more on display in the coming of Jesus. When the return, uh, when they returned from exile and were restored to the land of Canaan, it is a picture of what Jesus came to do to restore sinners to God. When, when God sent his son into this world, Jesus paid the penalty of sin for all those who trust in him uh, in order that they would be restored to God and no longer be in captivity to sin. So when the people of Israel came back from Babylon, they said it was like a dream come true. They were saying things like, is this for real? But all of that really should beg the the same response from us. If the Israelites were overwhelmed with amazement at being able to come back to the land of promise, our response, you know you're understanding the gospel right. When you begin to ask the question, is this for real? That God would send his son into this world to save sinners. That he would come to rescue me from the captivity of sin. That he would restore me in his favor. That I would be brought back to a place of promise then we're beginning to understand something of the grandeur of God's work. That's what the Israelites were saying just by coming back to Canaan. It was like a dream. And is this for real? Jesus himself in John 16, which we read, Jesus himself talked about this change that would take place in the life of his disciples. That they too would move from a place of sorrow to joy. Just as the Israelites moved from Babylon back to Canaan, It was from sorrow to joy. Jesus said that his disciples would move from sorrow to joy as well because they wouldn't see him and then they would see him again. That Jesus himself said there in John 16 uh, before he was crucified, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Like the, like the Israelites in exile, the disciples' sorrow would give way to joy because the Lord would restore what they had marred through sin. They would rejoice not just that Jesus was alive, not just that Jesus was resurrected. They would rejoice because they would see it as a work of God. They would conclude that God has done great things for us through Christ's resurrection. And our hearts know it full well. That's why they would be filled with joy. They would see that God's work of restoring them to favor was a work that was accomplished through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so if we can look at this and see how fitting it was for the Israelites to say God has done great things for us, is that our response if we have come to faith in the Lord Jesus? that God has done great things for me as well and that my heart knows joy as a result. 
I have tasted something of the sorrow of sin, but I've also seen something of the work of God's grace, and in that I rejoice. When the people came back from exile, it didn't mean that all their problems went away. In fact, if you read Nehemiah and Ezra, you find that that's quite not what happened. But it did mean that joy was now mixed into everything. They had a joy that was steady. And so it is in the Christian's life that their sorrow now is triumphed by a joy and that joy will not be taken away from them. So this psalm is teaching us about how it is that we are to reflect, how it is to chew over what it means to live this life. How do we live a life of faith? How do we live facing uncertainties? How do we look at the future and our present even? And the psalm teaches us to begin by looking back, looking back on what God has done in order to look forward expectantly. You see that in the the very logic of the psalmist. Look at what verse 4 says. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. That's just how he started the psalm. He began by saying, when the Lord restored. And now the plea, now the prayer becomes, since you have restored, do it even greater. It is building a case based on what God has done to this point. In other words, God brought back a remnant to Israel. But the full number has not yet come. And now he's asking God to bring in that full number. Bring, turn the hearts of all that they would turn back to the land. That they would all come that they would all know the favor of God, that, that he is looking for God to do an even greater work, or as Matthew Henry says, perfecting their deliverance, the completion of that deliverance. It is important to see the, the, pro, the progression here. It is looking back on what the Lord has done and praying for the Lord to do even more. The psalmist expects greater things, not because he's an optimist, It's not just because he wants to hold his head high and to approach life expecting good things. He's expecting big things because God has shown his mercy already. And now he looks for more. It has bolstered that confidence. Because God has already acted, he can expect God to do even more. You go back to John 16 and you see the exact same thing happening. Jesus goes on there, and he's after talking to them about sorrow giving way to joy, Jesus goes on to say, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive. Why? That your joy might be full. Jesus is saying his work continues, and you can expect that God's work will prevail. That's why Christians should expect big things from God. Because God is still at work. Because God's purposes will prevail. And because God has revealed that he is going to bring the nations unto himself. God's purposes have always been that the nations would come to know his blessings. And so we can look back and see what God has done already in Christ. He has sent a savior for sinners. Some have come to believe in that savior. 
but we are now asking God to do even more. As God has restored sinners unto himself, we're asking God to restore even greater, that his favor might be even more prominent, that his glory might be made even more manifested. Jesus himself teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done as earth, as on earth as it is in heaven. Knowing that God is determined to gather the nations unto himself makes, uh, 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 teaches us that we should be praying uh, for that very thing. So God has shown his purpose to save sinners. So we pray for God by his spirit to convert more, uh, knowing that purpose. There's that expectation. You have restored. Do it more. The old, our forefathers would talk about, you've converted us. Convert again. That you would continue that work of transformation in an individual's life. That it wouldn't be stagnant. That it wouldn't be halted. But that God would continue to advance in people's lives. That he would be working in families' lives. That he'd be working in nations. That people would come to see the good news in Jesus Christ. So the believer is able to look at the world around them. They're able to see the problems around them. But they're able to be confident because they know God's purpose. They're able to look back on what God has done in Christ in order to have confidence about the uncertainties ahead. Because he has restored in the past. His favor will be made known ahead as well. And so there is that expectation. But there's also the explanation of that prayer. In verses 4 through 6, you see that he gives two images there uh, to complete his, his plea. As one Hebrew commentator points out, these two images are not only striking, but they are complementary. Because the first one focuses on suddenness, and the second one on slowness. The two images you see there, he says in verses 4 and following, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Uh, the idea there is, is that in the south, uh, southern land, that it was a very dry, uh, arid spot, but there were these dry riverbeds, and even a small amount of rain, even as small as one inch of rain, that if it came down, it would, it would eventually come down into those dry riverbeds, and that it would become a mighty torrent. It could wipe out bridges uh, very quickly in the winter months. And here is that image that the psalmist is saying, God can do it quickly. Even where it looks impossible for things to change, God can change things quickly. And so the prayer uh, to God is one of restoring, one of turning back people unto himself, one of bringing blessing in the place of judgment, that the change can happen quite suddenly. But more than that, he adds to that a second image that uh, from the realm of the agriculture. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Uh, a farmer who goes out sowing seed, uh, sows seed in the hope of long-awaited harvests. Uh, the sower sows with the hope, but he must wait. And he's sowing his own investments away, hoping that he gets a return. But there's nothing that he can do to hurry the process. He simply has to sow and wait. 
So there's a balanced sense of realism in those verses. The psalmist believes that God can act suddenly, powerfully, in places where there can be no sign of change. But he also recognizes that God's work is advanced over time and through tears. Even as Jesus himself wept over the city of Jerusalem, knowing that God, uh, knowing God's power, he was also able to look forward for the joy that was set before him. Both happen. God can work quickly, but he also uses means and works through processes over time. And knowing that, the believer can approach life working, knowing that God is still at work. The scriptures teach that believers are not to grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. What is to prevent us when, uh, from becoming weary? What is to help us when we become burnt out? What is to help us when we have given and given and given and we don't see any change in our children's hearts, in our loved ones' hearts? When we don't see any change in that friend who we have ministered to? What is to prevent us from giving up and thinking everything is going downhill? Ultimately, it is believing that our labor is not in vain. It is believing that God is still at work and there will be a harvest and we have to wait, not knowing where the seed will bring forth fruit, but we entrust that God will bring forth a harvest and we believe that Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, he will wipe away every tear. And when Jesus returns, the full remnant will be brought in. What is to prevent the believer from looking ahead and becoming cynical? It's by acknowledging God's work continues. What's to prevent them from thinking that everything is going to be rosy? It's knowing that this life is accompanied by tears. But knowing that their labor is not in vain, and entrusting themselves to the Lord's work in the Lord's way, they can live by faith. And in doing so, they are trusting in their God. The life of faith is won by looking back on what God has done in order to look ahead with expectancy. Jesus will return. God's purposes will prevail. A harvest will be made. And God's people will be brought to faith. And so we can be praying this prayer. We can be praying for God to restore his fortunes. We can be praying for the favor of God to spread in our lives, in the lives of others. But we can do so based on what we know about Jesus Christ. Because God has done something amazing. Something that should make us say, is this real? Now we can look forward with faith, saying, it will be done. How do you live? Do you live acknowledging that there's a God at work? Do you live acknowledging that God's purposes will prevail? And do you live realizing that it's like a dream come true? That sinners 
can be forgiven by a holy God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we think over this psalm that you would keep us from uh, a despair over life, over the present situation, even over the uncertainties that lie ahead. Help us, Lord, also not to live life blindly, simply expecting good things to come without considering why. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be wise people, people who realize that in the fullness of time, you have brought forth uh, a Savior and that he has paid the penalty of sin and set the captives free. And so we pray, Lord, that we would know this deliverance ourselves and that we would be marked with joy and be able to confess that the Lord has done great things for us. Go before us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.